Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravella. I'm the co-host of this show. And my name is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, Tyler, back in March of, of this year, we had a great guest on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Rob Young, who is the executive director of the program for the study of developed shorelines at Western Carolina University. It was one of the top three shows we've ever had on the network. Uh, there's a lot of folks out there who... Uh, listen to Rob and are interested in what Rob is doing. And guess what today? Special because Rob is back on the network. It's totally stoked to have Rob on the American Shoreline podcast. Uh, if you have not listened to that first episode, you can just hit pause right now and go back and listen to it. March 14th, I want to say, uh, and it's a local control podcast, Peter's podcast. Uh, so we're really looking forward to diving in with Rob Young. But before we do, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsor. Well, we are pleased that the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today continue to be supported by the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, the number one national shoreline uh, association in America, and especially their upcoming national conference in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, October 22nd to 25th. Yes, it's, it's going to be a great conference and we're going to be there. That's right, folks. And uh, we, first of all, go on to ASBPA.org slash conferences. Yeah. And you can read all about it. They've got a tentative program up. Uh, you can find out what the registration fees are. But here's a hot tip for you from us at ASPN to you, the ASBPA conference goer. Yeah. Register early. You save a little money. How about that? <laughs> There's my hot tip. Uh, it's a great conference. We will be there. We are the exclusive podcasting partner of the uh, conference this year, and we really look forward to being there and seeing y'all. Yeah, we'll be doing four shows related to the conference at least. And uh like last year, I think that coverage is really important and lets the conference eke out of that building and get around the country. I think uh, so we're happy to have ASBPA as a continued sponsor. Uh, but Rob, we understand that you are planning to be at the ASBPA conference this year. Can you tell us a little bit about what you plan to do? <laughs> well, uh, I've been invited to participate in a uh, panel discussion um, by ASBPA leadership and um, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Myrtle Beach is, you know, a nice five-hour drive from the mountains of North Carolina here, so I'll probably have my whole team with me. That's fantastic, and I bet you we'll get a chance, I hope we'll get a chance to sit down with you at the conference. And uh, But let's, let's turn our attention. Rob, when we spoke back in March, you had mentioned a study that you were working on that has now been released, and it's called Coastal Hazards and Targeted Acquisitions a reasonable shoreline management alternative. It's produced by the program for the study of developed shorelines out there where you are by, by, by your team was released in July. Rob, we didn't get a chance to talk to you right when it came out because I understand you had uh, some time over in Europe. How was your trip to Europe? Uh, it was nice. We managed to make it there right between the two heat waves. So uh, we had a nice two and a half weeks of family vacation and a uh, little bit of relaxing on the French Côte du Jour and um, checking out some very cobbly beaches. Um, you know, a uh, beautiful part of the world, but I'm afraid the, their beaches pale in comparison uh, to most of what we have on the U.S. East Coast and Gulf Coast. No offense to my French colleagues. Well, welcome back to uh, the American shoreline, Rob. It's it's good to have you back on our shores. Uh, and you have uh, done an incredible uh, case study here, this report on uh, specifically looking at a region in North Topsail Beach. Uh, and why don't we just start off with uh, the, the reason why you commissioned this study and uh, what you were hoping to accomplish uh, with this report? I think the you know the primary goal behind beginning this series of case studies on uh, examining the practicality of buying out some oceanfront properties and problem areas on the, uh, on the ocean front is to simply um, examine the fiscal feasibility of such proposals to put forward a 
model and a demonstration project that everybody could talk about. You, you know, we don't really have any illusions that um, any of the municipalities we examine are going to jump right on it and execute the plan that we've uh, that we've come up with. The, the primary goal here is to give folks something to talk about because you know I think part of the problem with whether you want to call it strategic retreat or targeted buyouts, part part of the problem with implementing this as a coastal management tool is that we just haven't had a lot of really good examples to look at for yeah. you know how this might work for a community and what the pluses and minuses are. Um, there's a researcher named A.R. Siders who, uh, while uh, a fellow at Harvard, sort of compiled a database of all buyout and targeted acquisition plans in the country. And there are thousands of them. Almost none of them are from the ocean front. Um, you know, so we've had a fair amount of success doing targeted acquisitions and buyouts across the country, primarily inland in river flood plains, uh, you know, inland on the coastal plain. Um, and we've had almost no success with targeted acquisitions in any substantial way, and certainly not in a planned way, in coastal resort communities, and particularly on the ocean front. And you know, so we were simply asking the question: Is you know, is that because it wouldn't make any uh, economic sense to do this? Which I think is what a lot of people have really always believed that you know that that tax base is too critical. Um, you know, how would the numbers really play out if we? took a look at a few of the coastal communities that in our opinion are, you know, in the top 10 of exposure to coastal hazards nationally and tried to take a reasonable approach to examining what the benefits might be of buying out properties in those areas of those communities that are particularly vulnerable. And we know that this is a uh, kind of a new uh, this is a bit of a third rail area of discussion. And though we are certainly seeing a lot more uh, managed retreat, there was just the conference up in uh, Columbia University in New York. We've talked about the Ventura Project in California. And Rob, we've had you on the on the network before, and now we're talking about this report. I do think it's important to mention that we're still learning how to talk about retreat and how to size this up. And I applaud you and your team for taking a crack at it. And uh, in your conclusions, you do say, hey, look, this is a first crack. This is a an attempt to size this up, get a get develop an understanding of of how big the elephant may be, and uh, y'all did the work, and um, we're going to dive into it now. But I just want to uh, say, good job, well done. You've stepped into the breach, and I do think that this is a welcomed subject, uh, certainly on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, but also nationally. I think that this is just becoming more of a an acceptable topic. Now, with that being said, tell us why you chose this area in North Topsail Beach as being your first case study. <laughs> I'm sure that's the exact same question that uh, town leaders in North Topsail Beach are asking themselves. <laughs> uh, um, they got yeah, lucky, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> we had like... to start someplace, and um, you know, the, certainly the goal of this was not to pick on North Topsail Beach, North Carolina. Um, it, you know, in uh, and I always try to tell people that it's it's the philosophy of what we've developed in this case study that's really important. It's you know, it's not to try and paint um, a bleak picture of North Topsail Beach or the way North Topsail Beach has been managed. So, you know. Full disclosure, um, but in you know, in my professional opinion, that the, there's one section, the north end of North Topsail Beach, up near the inlet, that has been particularly pro- problematic for a long time, both for town leadership and um, from a scientific perspective, an area that is particularly exposed to a wide variety of coastal hazards, and uh, so it was a relatively straightforward place to to start. We have a couple other communities on our list that we're working in. I'm not at liberty to disclose them at the moment. Um, but 
you know, North Popsil uh, afforded us an opportunity to look at an area that is reasonably large in scale, you know, not just two or three homes, that's relatively contiguous, um, that we could, uh, you know, effectively put together sort of a larger scale vision of what a targeted acquisition might look like. In addition, the leadership in North Thompson Beach is, you know, constantly struggling with how to plan for and finance shoreline stabilization in this particular area. So we had some reasonable cost estimates to, to go with um, for their proposed coastal stabilization efforts that we could look at over the next 30 years to, you know, compare uh, stabilizing the shoreline with maybe taking a step back in this one particular area. So, you know, North Thompson Beach really had most of the elements that we needed to um, to try and seriously consider implementing a targeted acquisition. And you know, and in addition, from a practical point of view, it's not like the Grand Strand of South Carolina or. Um, you know, it's not like the Rockaways in New York where you've got uh, a shoreline lined with tall buildings that, you know, in all honesty, you know, would be a lot less practical to consider this kind of option than in a, a community that has primarily single family dwellings or those uh, dwellings that are multifamily are a, a reasonable scale. And, you know, so that's that's why. Um, North Popsil Beach, you know, probably much to their chagrin, won the lottery for where do we start with these case studies? You know, Rob, I think it would be helpful if you wouldn't mind um, painting the picture for our listeners from around the American shoreline who've maybe never been to North Topsail Beach about the community at large and also this uh, target zone that you uh, really crunched the numbers on that is so problematic. Well, um, I, I'm hoping and imagining that there will be a, a, a link with, along with the podcast. There will. We'll, to, there will be a link. To our report. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the cover of our report says it all in a lot of ways. In, what you see in North Topsail Beach is a shoreline that is covered with uh, massive geotextile sandbags and uh quite frequently has absolutely no dry beach left at all. So this is an instance where the protection of these coastal properties has largely eliminated the recreational beach and where during king tides, um, many of the oceanfront properties are surrounded by water. Um, So, you know, what we have here is a fairly extreme end member of coastal exposure for those oceanfront properties. In addition, the the properties in North Topsail Beach, and especially the ones we're looking at, are of fairly modest value. Um, you know, the small apartments that are in the multifamily dwellings and all the single-family homes, we, ultimately we targeted 347 properties in this proposed buyout. And they have an average value of $84,000, okay? So this is for these oceanfront properties. And and that's because some of what we've included in here are um, undeveloped and undevelopable lots that are actually underwater. And many of them are also, you know, very small apartments in multi-unit dwellings. So, um, you know, this is not... Uh, a community that has $20 million homes on the oceanfront. And you know, that's part of why they're having so much difficulty um, carrying this burden of constant coastal protection and beach nourishment uh, because, you know, it's expensive. And if you're a community of relatively modest means for a coastal resort community, then, you know, that, that makes it pretty tough to keep up with that cost of coastal protection. And Rob, right now the the town as as an as you know and, and and I do too, and I do to disclose, I used to work for the town of North Topsail Beach back in I think twenty uh, about twenty twelve. 
and help them put together the financing for the uh, inlet realignment uh, effort that was attempted uh, unsuccessfully, I think, to respond to the problems of the shoreline retreat on the north end of uh, the island in North Topsail Beach. Uh, so I do have some experience there. And what I'm reading now, Rob, is that the town is continuing uh, to, to want to fight this battle and that the next strategy, they've put millions of dollars onto the shoreline so far already. As you've said, the condition of the vulnerable structures at the north end of the island has not improved uh, as a result of those expenditures so far. Uh, it is it is the cover photo of the report absolutely does tell the complete story. It's it's really a great shot uh, and it will be linked in the in the in the in in the podcast release. But um, what I understand now is that the town is gearing up to attempt to install a terminal groin uh, on this inlet uh, end of the island. Can you talk about the inlet and can you uh, tell us what you understand the town's strategy to be at this stage of the game? Well, you know, I, I hesitate to speak too much for the town itself. So, I, you know, I can only speak from my perspective of what I have seen and what I understand. So, I, you know, to be very clear, I, you know, I'm not speaking for the town or what their um, expressed or unexpressed strategy may be for the future. Fair. That's quite um, fair. Thanks for putting that up, pointing that out. Um, and, and yes, you're right. They are exploring the possibility of building a groin on the end of the island in the hopes that the beach nourishment sand that they place in the future will last a little bit longer. Um, you know, anyone who's familiar with shorelines in um, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia in particular, where there are fairly active uh, inlet processes, understands that, you know, the most dynamic portions of any barrier island are those areas near the inlet. So the North Topsail Beach area, the target area, is fully within the state of North Carolina's inlet hazard area, and it's heavily influenced by in inlet processes. In addition to, you know, long-term sea level rise and shoreline retreat, impacts from coastal storms and storm surge, and, you know, increasing king tides, and all of these other coastal hazards. So, you know, the part of the town that we're looking at, is, you know, has really has the whole panoply of coastal hazards that they're, that they're dealing with. And, you know, my understanding is that the town government um, uh, at the moment is primarily focused on trying to finance uh, a terminal growing project along with continued beach nourishment over the next 30 years. Um, and the hope is that the terminal growing built on the inlet will have some cost savings to the beach nourishment projects, which, you know, can, uh, placed on a dynamic inlet shoreline, it's very hard to get the sand to stick there for as long as you would like it to, especially uh, as the costs of beach nourishment continue to increase. And when you're a town like North Topsail Beach and you don't have a kajillion dollars, and on top of that, uh, a good portion of the community is actually in the Coastal Barrier Resources System, so they are not eligible for federal funding for those beach nourishment projects in those areas. Right. Financially challenging area. Uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of things. Uh, one, I want to discuss the philosophical underpinnings of the series, the study series that you're doing. Uh, but I noticed in, in your introductory remarks, and it also is it, it quite early in the report, um, this notion about the, the utility of buyouts in other parts of the country and around the U.S. You mentioned the Harvard study where they had compiled a database of all of the buyout programs that have occurred. Uh, mostly, as you said, inland and riverine. Uh, they've, in fact, moved entire towns along the Mississippi River uh, that were uh, not flooded during this record Mississippi flood year. And uh, I, I did see some interviews with the folks that were quite pleased that their town had been lifted and moved three miles. Or I think it was a couple miles away from the river. But right. the thing I want to ask you is, given the fact that there is a track record of doing this, um, it obviously is uncommon in these types of communities, these barrier island resort 
communities. Why is that, Rob? Why why has it not been commonly done on the shoreline? What what did what did your study or where are you in the understanding of of, of that reluctance? Um, what can you tell us about that? Boy, you know, we could probably do an entire show just trying to answer that question, I think. Um, you, you have to understand that the vast majority of those properties in these kinds of communities are investment properties. They're not folks' primary residences. A lot of them are owned by LLCs and trusts and things like that, and a lot of them are rented out uh, as as if they were a small business. So you know, you know, find that you find a lot of interest inland in buyouts um, from folks who are working class and living in their primary residences. And you know, who who wants to have all of your valued belongings, memorabilia, you know, pictures, photo albums, all of that kind of thing, flooded repeatedly. So people living in primary residences tend to, to be a little bit more interested in not getting flooded in, in my experience than folks who are dealing largely with investment property. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that many coastal property owners are very attached to their property. And for some of them, it may have been in the family for more than a generation. I get that. Um, but if you look at the tax rolls and parcel ownership in North Carolina on the ocean front, more than 90% of it, we're talking about absentee landlords who don't vote in those communities and they're not in primary residences. And so you've got to have a little bit of a different calculus, I think, about the level of risk or flooding that you're willing to take when that's the case. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think the other reason is just even more practical than that. In the United States of America, there are way more incentives to rebuild in um, the flood zone than, uh, with investment property than there are disincentives. Um, you know, Climate Central just released a study last week that was looking at the rate of development in what they identified as the 10-year floodplain and showed that it had increased in so many places, um, which would seem counterintuitive to all the discussions we hear around the country today about the seriousness of nuisance flooding and sea level rise. And, you know, the reason for that is because we still subsidize the, most of the risk for building in those kinds of places. And we do it through a variety of mechanisms. You know, we do it through federal flood insurance. We do it through Stafford Act public assistance relief from the federal government that comes in and rebuilds roads and power grid and those kinds of things. We do it through the simple fact that if your home is owned by an LLC and you and it gets damaged or destroyed, that you can write off those losses, right, on your taxes yeah. for uh, an extended period of time. There are just simply a lot of economic incentives to continue to invest in these hazardous locations because the public sector is bearing a lot of the cost for that risk. So we have the situation where the private sector is getting most of the benefits and the public sector is bearing a lot of the risk. And until we actually change that calculus and um, sort of turn it on its head so that the private sector is, uh, is bearing a substantial portion of the cost of being on the ocean front, then you know, folks who are building, investing, rebuilding, developing these places are making perfectly reasonable economic decisions. You know, I don't begrudge them um, the fact that they are making a wise economic choice for themselves and their family. Wow. You know, I think you're I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh the two causes that you mentioned there, the nature of the ownership, and I do think you're you're correct that non-resident owners have a different relationship with the property. Uh, it is a it is quite truly a small business and investment exercise. Uh, so they don't they don't they suffer less the the personal toll, as you said. But this incentives, I'm glad you I, I think you're 100 percent correct that the economics incentive system that we've set up um, drives people to, to continue to invest in high-risk areas and to persist in every effort to maintain it. Um, 
Gilbert Gall, who's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author and, and reporter in Philadelphia, was on the podcast network about, I would say, a month or so ago. And he is the author of a book coming out this fall called The Geography of Risk. And it's about the coastal incentives uh, topic that you mentioned. I suspect everything that's in his book you are well aware of. But uh, given those inherent uh, causes to the reluctance to have a buyout program, I mean, let me ask you this, Rob. I, I, I know what, what it says in the report is that you're hoping that by doing this series, you're going to get local communities to start thinking, at least start seriously considering the option. Um, you know, it sounds like a tough thing to pull off, given the fact that rational economic decision makers are putting more stuff in the wrong places. Well, you know, I would say that the the interested parties in this proposal should really be um, – Let's take North Topsail Beach, for example. You know, by our calculation, the properties that we propose for this targeted acquisition, 347 properties, are about 7% of the tax base for the entire municipality. 7%. Um, uh, you know, the folks who should be really interested in taking a hard look at our numbers and how reasonable this is as a proposal is the other 93% of the tax base in North Topsail Beach. Because right now, you have a municipality that spends a phenomenal amount of its resources, personnel time, leadership energy, emergency management dollars and time focused on 7% of their tax base. And, you know, they are going to have to borrow money, continue to borrow money to finance coastal protection projects that are um, designed to try, try to protect the most vulnerable part of that island community. So, you know, I guess my pitch, both to town leadership and to the 93% of the tax base in a coastal community is just imagine if you put all of that uh, funding, time, energy, creativity over the next 30 years into planning for and protecting the most sustainable part of your community, which is the other 93%. Um, to me, that's a much more rational, forward-thinking approach to preserving the tax base of that community for the long run and preserving the coastal economy writ large for the long run. And that's what we want people to think about when they look at this. We don't want people to think, wow, these crazy guys are suggesting that we buy out 347 properties and we're going to lose X amount of dollars of the tax base. I mean, that's, I think that's typically what people first look at and it might sound like a lot, but the real goal here is to make a sustainable coastal municipality for the long run as sea level rise continues and as they have to deal with the coastal storms of the future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what this plan is really about is how do we do that? And, and, you know, we ask people to look at this proposal in that context, um, not as this sort of scary third rail of managed retreat or coastal retreat or, you know, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. which tends to make people's hair stand on end if, you know, they live, work, and, and deal with properties in the coastal zone. You know, this is about another practical tool for the long-term management of your municipality and that coastal economy. And the fact of the matter is that we really think that um, it makes long-term sense for some coastal communities, not all, some coastal communities that have these persistent erosion hotspots and problems to seriously consider thoughtful mechanisms to change the map of their community, which may involve reducing the number of parcels a little bit. But, you know, I 
think that you will gain property value in the remaining parcels, even though we don't really calculate that in our analysis. But, you know, when you replace all of those sandbags with, um, you know, what we hope would be the return of a more natural beach that people can actually recreate on and put their towel down on again, um, there's going to be an increase in the amenity values for many of the other properties on Topsail Beach. And when you're not having to spend so much money on consulting engineering fees for this problem area over and over again, um, and you can focus on the rest of the community that's more sustainable, that just sounds like a reasonable suggestion to yeah. me. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't mean to imply that that this would solve all the problems for the north end of Topsail Beach for forever. I mean, there's probably still going to need to be a little bit of management and some uh, beach nourishment. And, you know, we it may require a few other property acquisitions um, way down near the inlet again in the future. But it's certainly something that should be talked about. It shouldn't just be utterly dismissed when you're doing your economic and cost analysis for your future beach nourishment projects and growing projects. Well, I think that's exceptionally well put. I, I gotta, I'm got i going to read a sentence from the report because it's a sentence that I've never read in a, in a report of this type, but it's on the topic. I said, this is what you said in the report. Wouldn't it be nice... I love that beginning of that sentence. Wouldn't it be nice if a municipality like North Topsail Beach could stop spending all of their time, energy, administrative hours, and money on 7% of the tax base and turn all of those resources loose on the 93% of the tax base that will be much more sustainable over the next 30 years? I love that sentence. It would be nice, Rob. I think there's something here, and, and it... And, you know, I think if you were looking for a community where a buyout uh, is rational and prudent and would uh, create greater benefits to the broader public, both in the community and visitors to the town, uh, you know, this is it. And it's because of that inlet and because of its dynamic nature and and the futility of these, these damn geotextile bags and Well, can I I pile on to this, too, Rob? You know, what I think here is an important consideration is that, you know, these were these were platted out development areas that uh, people were given permission to develop and um, the community. I, I think that it's important. And not that long ago. It, not that long ago. I mean, the town was founded in the 70s, 1970s. Right, really? Rob? Is that right? Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yeah, so it it hasn't been a terribly long time. But my point is, is is that we make mistakes, and I think that it is okay and we should be encouraging local government leaders to account for, especially in coastlines. I mean, we see this everywhere. Uh, you've got submerged parcels <laughs> and in South Padre Island, Texas. I mean... They were they platted that island out like it was a, a suburb subdivision, and um, that a that doesn't fit the modern expectation of proper coastal development. It doesn't it doesn't fit the expectation of how to most economically uh, extract the extract the highest and best use for the area either. But you know, in the case of your study area, Rob, I I just I really do think that man. There was a mistake made uh, in clearly you look at the pictures, you look at I mean, this should not be like this. Uh, now, what you're proposing is rather than pump uh, the money into beach renourishment, armament, et cetera, et cetera, over the next you know foreseeable planning horizon, that we'd be better served uh, erasing that area. And of course, there would still need to be some sort of management for the area. It would be a park space or put you in your report. You say, hey, put it into conservation, put it into some sort of local park, some sort of uh, so it will continue to serve a public purpose, presumably. Um, but I do think I, 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 I would say 
I would say we would make it a beach again. Yeah, sure. But my point is, is that we, this is a tool that should be in the toolkit for local governments. Uh, mistakes are made, uh, poor decisions are made, or decisions are made without complete information. Uh, local leaders do the best they can with the information they have in the, in the period that they're serving. And as decades roll by, uh, oftentimes not even very many of them, the picture changes. And um, I was very curious. I, I'm sure you saw, Rob, the Coastal Review online uh, article where they had the mayor quoted. And uh, he took quite a bit of exemption to your study, Rob. Yes. Yeah, the, the mayor w was not particularly happy. And in, in all honesty, I understand some of his frustration. Um, you, you know, we intentionally did not engage town leadership in this particular study. We wanted to sort of do it as an academic study from 10,000 feet. Um, and so, you know, I understand the, you know, the consternation that those folks have in having this just being dropped in their lap and I get that and you know I feel a little bit bad about that but you know, that's the way that we've decided to proceed with the case studies that we're doing um, and you know I think that you know, the, the mayor and I are going to continue to disagree on a couple of issues um, it, you know including this one um, but you know my audience is not just town leadership but my audience is all the property owners and citizens in North Topsail Beach and you know we have been contacted by a few of those oceanfront property owners in the targeted buyout area they preferred not to be identified but the ones who contacted us contacted us because they were actually interested in the proposal and many of those properties have been uh, losing value, not gaining value over time. And uh, I think that there are folks there, if they could be satisfactorily made whole or regain a reasonable portion of their investment that you know, are more than ready to you know, walk away and buy someplace else, maybe even stay within North Topsail Beach within that municipality. Right. But you can imagine the frustration that some of these property owners have had, especially some who have purchased more recently when you know, they don't really have that beautiful recreational beach that they'd always hoped to have with their beach home. And, no. and, you know, the, so the main question here is what, what do you do about that? And, um, certainly continued engineering is one option and it's the option that most communities explore, um, for a wide variety of reasons, including the fact that that's what most coastal engineering firms do for a living. So why would they advise you to do anything else? Um, but we just wish that an analysis that is sort of on par with what we've done here would also be included and really thought of seriously at the municipal level and the county level when thinking about how to manage our shorelines for the next 30 years. And I think it's pretty clear if you look at our study, that we've been very conservative in how we have um, crunched the numbers. Uh, you know, we, we've even assumed that the properties in North Topsail Beach are going to continue to increase in value over the next 30 years and that they will all be there 30 years from now, which is, I think, yeah. probably not the Generous. case. <laughs> <laughs> a generous um, assumption, but let let me let let's talk about the study re analysis here, Rob. Good idea. And the what you developed, it sounds like, is a vulnerability assessment protocol. And it sounds like the purpose of this exercise is to assess the economic, I don't know, the economic viability uh, of of approaching this shoreline problem. Um, in a different way. Can you tell us about the vulnerability assessment protocol? And it really seems this is where the rubber meets the road between your view and that of the mayor is the economic feasibility of this. Walk us through the study approach and the protocol that you developed. Well, there's two stages to the, to the case study as we've conducted it. We, you know, we wanted to start with a scientific evaluation of 
where the real exposure to hazards was for the island and for these properties. So we didn't want to just pick a bunch of properties without a scientific basis for recommending the buyout. So what we've utilized is a vulnerability assessment protocol that we have developed over the last five years for the Department of Interior and the National Park Service. So this is a well-vetted protocol that we have been utilizing across the country to examine building by building exposure, sensitivity, and vulnerability to coastal hazards in all national parks, uh, coastal national parks in the U.S. So, you know, everything from the Statue of Liberty to an outhouse in the Everglades. And in North Carolina, we've done Cape Hatteras and we've done Cape Lookout. So the this protocol has been scientifically vetted. And what's unique about it is that it's it's an, a building by building, road by road scoring of exposure and vulnerability. It's not just making another map. So so we start with examining uh, the the exposure of structures in North Topsail Beach on the north end using this uh, protocol that we've developed for the National Park Service. And at the end of the day, we then develop a list of those oceanfront properties, those properties that are in every single one of our hazard categories from um, the state's inlet hazard area to long-term shoreline erosion, storm surge, sea overrides all of them. And so, you know, we're really talking about the most exposed individual properties on the island, on Topsail Island. And uh, those end up in the targeted uh, acquisition list. Now, we've added a few that might be, that were just outside of that highest vulnerability list for practical reasons. There are a few properties that are set back a little bit so that they're just outside the coastal erosion buffer, um, but might be sitting in between a couple of properties that are highly ranked as highly exposed. So in order to make the buyout area contiguous, we've added a few properties that gets us up to 340-some properties. Some of these properties are you know, underwater parcels that have basically no value and are paying like a dollar in taxes a year, $10. I can't remember whatever the minimum is. So that's, you know, we start with this very scientific approach to developing the properties that we want to target in the buyout. And then we simply crunch the numbers. We use North Topsail Beach's cost estimates for shoreline protection over the next 30 years. And we compare that to the taxes that those oceanfront properties in our targeted acquisition area would be paying over 30 years. And that's property taxes. We look at taxes from rentals and you know all of that analysis to look at what would be lost if those properties were not there, what would be lost in revenue to the municipality and to the county. And then we look at what the costs are to holding them in place. And by our very conservative analysis, where, like I said, we assume that every single one of those properties is still going to be there 30 years from now, and I'm pretty dubious about that. Um, and we also assume that they're going to continue to appreciate and value over that period of time. Uh, it's basically, you know, it's close to $3 million cheaper to buy them over this 30-year period than it would be to do protection. And the main thing that we also try and point out in the report is that there are so many unquantifiable benefits to carrying out this proposal uh, that are also really important. And, you know, that's like, as we spoke of before, transfer of amenity values. So if all of a sudden you have a more natural beach at that end of the island that all the other property owners can use, that increases everybody's rental rates and property values. 
um, the lack of expenditures for emergency management. We had no way of estimating the consulting engineering fees that are required for doing all of this project development. There are a whole bunch of other ways that the costs of the buyout are offset with benefits that are difficult to quantify. And, and that's not even discussing any of the potential environmental benefits to getting all of those sandbags out of the water. Yeah, I definitely think that it's it's certainly a difficult to imagine how to come up with any sort of reasonable uh, estimate there on the benefit side. But let's let's just circle back to the cost side. I'm I am curious to know just from a practical perspective, <clears throat> you know how 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 much faith you know you take in in these numbers. And I guess the the the, the method that you used was assessed value. Is that right? Yes. So this is a, my understanding is that this is a value that the actual local government is using, the, ta- the, the tax assessor's office, I guess, is using for, on the tax rolls. And that's uh, a good number because you can go get it and it's publicly available and you didn't need to blow your cover to, to access this information. Um, but I would, I do wonder in the, like in the, uh, event that there was, if the community was actually to go through with this proposal, um, what, would those numbers like hold up? Do you believe that, um, you would actually be able to implement a buyout on the assessed value, uh, figure? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And we, you know, we don't have a lot of models on the ocean yeah, to, totally. to go by. I can tell you that if you talk to Fawn McGee, who leads the Blue Acres program in the state of New Jersey, which is uh, their, the state's primary uh, buyout program for New Jersey properties, flood vulnerable properties, it's got a lot of funding after Sandy, they typically end up negotiating a payment that's less than the assessed value. And a lot of the properties that we're looking at here in North Topsail, the assessed value has been going down over time. So, you know, again, uh, I think that using the assessed value for these properties is probably is a pretty reasonable number. Of course, there are going to be some property owners that believe that their assessed value is low and that they would like to, if somebody's buying out their property, they're going to try and leverage whatever, uh, power that they might have to hold out to try and drive that price up. And, you know, believe me, I have no illusions that this would be easy, Um, especially since, you know, we really haven't done anything on this scale before, especially in a resort community. So no question that there are some details to be worked out. And, And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons why we put this plan out there. You know, we're hoping that, uh, the adaptation community, the coastal management community might help us answer some of these questions because um, it's, yeah, it's even if you identified the pot of money, um, dealing with that many individual property owners would, would be complicated to say the least. No doubt about it. Well, you know, I think Rob, what you guys are doing here with this initial report and the series that will follow is exactly what needs to be done. And that is to inspire the community of professionals that are involved in shoreline management in in the government sector, uh, the public sector, and in the private sector to, to sort out the execution strategy here and to work through these details Uh, Because I can tell you as someone who has financed shoreline restoration projects, it is not uncommon for people to come in and say, well, we just ought to buy it all out. And our response up until now has been there isn't a clear methodology to do that. The assessment, the economic assessment of that has not been fully done. And so in order for this to be a viable uh, strategy and fully considered, I think you're doing a service to the communities, the coastal communities around the country by working through 
uh, the details. But I have two quick questions. Um, one is, on an, in the assessment methodology, uh, do you make any allowance for the potential litigation that you might have to go through to establish fair market value or the purchase rights that the government may wish to execute? That's number one. And number two, w- let's assume that these parcels, the ones that are uh, constructed on, uh, like on the cover of the report, you can just see the beachfront properties that are right basically in the surf zone, but for the sandbags. Um, Ultimately, we're talking about the removal of those structures in order to create the beach in the area that you're talking about. Uh, So two questions, is is there any litigation cost built into the model? And number two, are there uh, cost of deconstruction and removal of the homes? Is that built into your cost structure? Yes, so we do estimate the cost of removal, both of the sandbags and of all structures in the targeted acquisition. That cost is in there. That's great. Um, and to, to your first question, no, <laughs> we we don't really. Um, you know, I, it's another one of those um, uh, numbers that would we would have just been wildly guessing. I think to try and to try and estimate that. Yes, and. Um, you know, again, this is this is a a, a big part of the final, um, you, you know, the, the final indication of whether something like this is practical or not. Is yeah. whether a community, hopefully with assistance and support from the county and the state and maybe the feds, could actually come together to pull something like this off. Um, now, having said that, you know, the municipality and local government and the county, they do have a certain amount of leverage in that if they go to all these property owners and say, you know what, we're not spending public funds anymore holding the shoreline in place in front of your property. Right. Uh, that's a pretty powerful uh, bit of leverage that they have to encourage those folks to think about uh, you know how much yeah. risk they want to absorb themselves. So they, you know, they, a municipality that was seriously interested has that in their back pocket, right? Yeah, and, and the other thing that's important about these transaction costs when I'm talking about the potential litigation or in administrative management of the of, of the buyout, for example. Um, I, I wonder, it's probably comparable to the administrative load that it takes to get a beach permit. Uh, for a shoreline structure or for a uh, beach restoration program and to line up the financing and the bonding. I mean, you, you look at the transaction costs of beach management, uh, you know, a buyout is going to, it probably would be comparable, but you wouldn't be, you know, getting a permit from, you know, the DEP in North Carolina and a federal 404 permit, and you wouldn't be paying for the you know, the hydrographic surveys and the sand searches and and then all the legal time for the easements. I mean, that in other words, there is a high burden of transaction costs associated with beach management. Uh, the bio program is going to have its own administrative costs, but I'll bet you they're, who knows, maybe they're comparable. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. And, you know, at the end of the day for... Um, for a community like North Topsail Beach, if we're talking about them again specifically, a community that's in Cobra that does not regularly receive those federal funds to assist with their coastal protection projects that support the property values of the community, if you were able to tap into either state or federal funds, I don't know if you're listening, Senators Tillis or Burr, um, to support or even uh, you know, to entirely fund this buyout, um, you know, just over $30 million, uh, to then it becomes, to me, a little bit of a no-brainer <laughs> um, because all the protection costs, they're pretty much on the hook for those largely themselves. Um, now, you know, our analysis shows that even if they had to pay for the buyout themselves, it's still worth it. But just imagine if they were able to uh, tap into other sources of funding to to fund the buyout. And there's nothing that prevents the federal government from buying out properties in a COBRA zone. It's they simply can't use federal funds for coastal protection. So you yeah. know there there are some some serious things for folks to think about. I think. 
I think I think you're totally right. And man, this has got me thinking about all sorts of stuff. But uh, I, I I think we have a few minutes left. I've got another question. I know Peter does too. Uh, so here we go. Um, I'm curious to know about kind of the slippery slope uh, fears of, you know, a beach community like, like Topsail. Oh, sure. Uh, today it's the 7% in, in this high-risk zone. But at what point do we consider all barrier island development or coastal front development um, too risky? And is this, is, does this, is this scary for people because uh, uh, it, it signals a complete change in the way we look at our proximity to the shoreline in general. You see what I'm saying, Rob? Well, I think that that kind of slippery slope vision is what most skeptics of these kinds of proposals would really like to start the discussion with. Um, but I think it's really a false choice. You know, in the vast majority of coastal communities, uh, the substantial portions of these barrier islands are going to be reasonably sustainable over the long term. Let's look look at another area in North Carolina that has an erosion hotspot, and that's the northern outer banks. If you look at a place like Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, where there's a significant amount of erosion on the ocean front there, and they've had to spend, uh, you know, a decent amount of money uh, protecting the road and doing all kinds of dune building and beach nourishment and stuff like that. you know, taking a step back along that stretch of shoreline is not the end to the northern outer banks of North Carolina. This coastal erosion doesn't operate like cancer. It's not going to eat into the center of the island and then turn left and hollow out the middle and and do something like that. You know, that's just not how this works. Um, the fact of the matter is that the areas that we suggest communities look at are places that they've been having trouble with for 20 years. These are the erosion hotspots. And, um, it, in most places, um, it's not uh, a slippery slope to, uh, the, the dissolution of their entire coastal municipality. It's dealing with uh, a place that's been a headache for the community for a long time. And, um, you know, I, yeah. I don't really like to talk about, you know, what things are going to be like a century from now, because I, I don't know that I know the answer to that and how we transition from one spot to another. What we're talking about is the time frame th- that most planning departments deal with the next 15 years, maybe 20, 30 years. And over that time frame, certainly what we're talking about here is a reasonable solution. Indeed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Rob Young, the executive director of the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines, Western Carolina University. Uh, Rob, we will post the link to the study on North Topsail Beach, the case study, your first one in the series. Uh, if you'll promise that when you do the next one, you'll come back and talk about your next case study. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd be happy to. And I, I just say one last message to your listeners. Yeah. And, and that is that, um, you know, we're, we're academics and we're adults. We're used to peer review. And we will learn a lot more from people who send us criticisms. Um, yeah, it's nice to be patted on the back and it's nice to get a thumbs up. But for those of you out there who are skeptical about this, um, take a look at the report and um, we'll, we'll learn a lot more about how this may or may not be practical in the future from folks who send us reasonable, well-thought critiques of the work that we've done um, than, than, than folks that simply say, hey, great job. And you know, again, please, if you want to say great job, say great job. But if you are critical of the approach, um, let us know. Send us some details. Uh, you know, we'd love to hear what we might have missed. Great. 
Well, that's an open invitation, as all good academic researchers do. It's always about finding the truth and uh, not just uh, the particular hypothesis that you're trying to, to, to work out. So, uh, Rob, thanks a lot for the time. And uh, I think the next horizon on this thing is to figure out the political execution of this thing. And it, if, once the economics get a little bit more clear, but I think that what you're doing is such an important part of the conversation station on the American shoreline. It's great to see the horsepower being applied by by uh, by your organization and group and uh, keep working and we'll love to have you back. Thanks guys. I appreciate it. Spun